Chapter Six of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A man makes plans. Within an hour after his arrival in Dawes, Carrington was sitting in the big front room of his suite in the Castle Hotel, inspecting the town. A bay window projected over the sidewalk, and from a big leather chair placed almost in the center of the bay between the two windows and facing a third, at the front, Carrington had a remarkably good view of the town. Dawes was a thriving center of activity with reasons for its prosperity. Walking towards the castle from the railroad station, Carrington had caught a glimpse of the big dam blocking the constricted neck of a wide basin west of the town, and farther westward stretched a vast agricultural section, level as a floor, with a carpet of green slumbering in the white sunlight, and dotted with young trees that seemed almost ready to bear. There were many small buildings on the big level, some tent houses, and straight through the level was a wide, sparkling stream of water, with other and smaller streams intersecting it. These streams were irrigation ditches, and the moisture in them was giving life to a vast section of country that had previously been arid and dead. But Carrington's interest had not been so much for the land as for the method of irrigation. To be sure, he had not stopped long to look, but he had comprehended the system at a glance. There were locks and flumes and water gates and plenty of water. But the irrigation company had not completed its system. Carrington intended to complete it. Dawes was two years old, and it had the appearance of having been hastily constructed. Its buildings were mostly of frame. Even the castle, large and pretentious, and the town's aristocrat of hostelries was a frame. Carrington smiled, for later, when he got himself established, he intended to introduce an innovation in building material. The courthouse was a frame structure. It was directly across the street from the castle, and Carrington could look into its windows and see some men at work inside at desks. He had no interest in the post office, for that was of the national government, and yet, perhaps, after a while, he might take some interest in that. For Carrington's vision, though selfish, was broad. A multitude of men of the Carrington types have taken bold positions in the eternal battle for progress, and all have contributed something toward the ultimate ideal and not all have been scoundrels. Carrington's vision, however, was blurred by the moat of greed. Dawes was flourishing. He intended to modernize it, but in the process of modernization, he intended to be the chief recipient of the material profits. Carrington had washed, shaved himself, and changed his clothes, and, as he sat in the big leather chair in the bay overlooking the street, he looked smooth, sleek, and capable. He had seemed massive in the Pullman, wearing a traveling suit of some light material, and his corpulent waistline had been somewhat accentuated. The blue serge suit he wore now made a startling change in his appearance, 
It made his shoulders seem broader. It made the wide, swelling arch of his chest more pronounced, and, in inverse ratio, it contracted the corpulent waistline, almost eliminating it. Carrington looked to be what he was, a big, virile, magnetic giant of a man in perfect health. He had not been sitting in the leather chair for more than fifteen minutes when there came a knock on the door behind him. "'Come,' he commanded. A tall man entered, closed the door behind him, and, with hat in hand, stood looking at Carrington with a half-smile which might have been slightly diffident or impudent or defiant. It was puzzling. Carrington had twisted in his chair to get a glimpse of his visitor. He now grunted, resumed his former position, and said gruffly, "'Hello, Danforth.' Danforth stepped over to the bay and, without invitation, drew up a chair and seated himself near Carrington. Danforth was slender, big-framed, and sinewy. His shoulders were broad and his waist slim. There was a stubborn thrust to his chin. His nose was a trifle too long to perfectly fit his face. His mouth was a little too big and the lips too thin. The nose had a slight droop that made one think of selfishness and greed, and the thin lips, with a downward swerve at the corners, suggested cruelty. These defects, however, were not prominent, for they were offset by a really distinguished head with a mass of short, curly hair that ruffled attractively under the brim of the felt hat that he wore. The hat was in his right hand now, but it had left its impress on his hair and as he sat down, he ran his free hand through it. Danforth knew where his attractions were. He grinned shallowly at Carrington when the latter turned and looked at him. He cleared his throat. I suppose you've heard about it. I couldn't help hearing, Carrington scowled at the other. What in hell was wrong? We sent you out here, gave you more than a year's time and all the money you want, which has been plenty, and then you lose. What in the devil was the matter? Too much Taylor, smirked the other. But what else? Nothing else, just Taylor. Carrington exclaimed profanely. Why, that man didn't even know he was a candidate. He was on the train I came in on. It was Neil Norton's scheme, explained Danforth. I had him beaten to a frazzle. I suppose he knew it. Two days before the election, he suddenly withdrew his name and substituted Taylor's. You know what happened. He licked me two to one. He was too popular for me, damn him. Norton owns a newspaper here, the only one in the county. The Eagle. Why didn't you buy him? Danforth grinned sarcastically. I didn't feel that reckless. Honest, huh? Carrington rested his chin in the palm of his right hand and scowled into the street. He was convinced that Danforth had done everything he could to win the election, and he was bitterly chagrined over the result. But that result was not the dominating thought in his mind. He kept seeing Taylor, as the latter had stood on the station platform, stunned with surprise over the knowledge that he had been so signally honored by the people of Dawes. 
and Carrington had seen Marion Harlan's glances at the man. He had been aware of the admiring smile she had given Taylor, and bitter passion gripped Carrington at the recollection of the smile. More, he had seen Taylor's face when the girl had smiled. The smile had thrilled Taylor. It had held promise for him, and Carrington knew it. Carrington continued to stare out into the street. Danforth watched him furtively, in silence. At last, not opening his lips, Carrington spoke. "'Tell me about this man, Taylor.' "'Taylor owns the Arrow Ranch in the basin south of here. His ranch covers about 20,000 acres. He has a clear title.' "'According to report, he employs about 30 men.' They are holy terrors, that is. They are what is called hard cases, though they are not outlaws by any means. Just a devil-may-care bunch that raises hell when it strikes town. They swear by Taylor. So far as Carrington could see, everybody in Dawes swore by Taylor. Carrington grimaced. That isn't what I want to know, he flared. How long has he been here? What kind of fellow is he? Taylor owned the Arrow before Dawes was founded. When the railroad came through, it brought with it some land sharks that tried to frame up on the ranch owners in the vicinity. It was a slick scheme, they tell me. They had clouded every title and figured to grab the whole county, it seems. Taylor went after them. People I've talked with here say it was a dandy shindy while it lasted. The land grabbers brought the courts in and a crooked judge. Taylor fought them, crooked judge and all, to a bite the dust finish. Toward the end, it was a free-for-all, and the land grabbers were chased out of the county. Naturally, the folks around here think a lot of Taylor for the part he played in the deal. Besides that, he's a man that makes friends quickly and holds them. Has Taylor any interests besides his ranch? A share in the water company, I believe. He owns some land in town, and he is usually on all the public committees here. About thirty, isn't he? Twenty-eight. Carrington looked at the other with a sidelong, sneering grin. Have any ladies come into his young life? Danforth snickered. You got me. I hadn't inquired. He doesn't seem to be much of a ladies' man, though, I take it. Doesn't seem to have time to monkey with them. Hmm. Carrington's lips went into a pout as he stared straight ahead of him. Danforth at last broke a long silence with, Well, we got licked, all right. What's going to happen now? Are you going to quit? Quit? Carrington snapped the word at the other, his eyes flaming with rage. Then he laughed, mirthlessly, resuming. This defeat was unexpected. I wasn't set for it. But it won't alter things very much. I'll have to shake a leg, that's all. What time does the next train leave here for the capital? At two o'clock this afternoon, Danforth's eyes widened as he looked at Carrington. The curiosity in his glance caused Carrington to laugh shortly. "'You don't mean that the governor is in this thing?' said Danforth. "'Why not?' demanded Carrington. "'Bah! Do you think I came in with my eyes closed?' 
There was a new light in Danforth's eyes, the flame of renewed hope. Then we've still got a chance, he declared. Carrington laughed. A too popular mayor is not a good thing for a town, he said significantly. End of chapter 6